let's uh, begin with our chants as usual. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps and the paths of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. It's a chant to Mipam, I guess, since he was Manjushri. Hey, good evening, welcome. So I thought I would uh, go over a little bit of uh, the biography and then we'll shift back to the lion's roar. <laughs> the final deed, the last act. On uh, page 116. Okay, so that same day, Lama Ozil Rinpoche, his main attendant and buddy, sent letters post-haste to Shishin Dzogchen and other monasteries despite the prayers of Kenchen Yuntin Gyamso, Kenchen Kunpel, and Lama Ozil. Mipam Rinpoche maintained his previous resolve to depart, so their prayers obviously were supplicating him to remain. He said that there were no further cause there were, was no further cause for him to remain in this world but that on account of the auspicious connection he would stay a little longer although he had given up extending his life he nevertheless blessed it so as to remain until the 29th of the month of Saga so, so he'd been extending his life through his, the power of his meditation for some time and as we read I think earlier in this chapter been in excruciating pain for some 17 years. This is really interesting that he'd been living with chronic pain. We all we know uh, these days there's a lot of work on chronic pain and uh, that's the trauma that that inflicts on the body. So interesting to hear a Lama talking about that. Uh, let's see, the uh, 29th day of the month of Saga, footnote 251, is the fourth month of the Tibetan year, regarded as sacred because it contains the anniversaries of the Buddha's birth and his Parinirvana. And that's in uh, either April or May of our calendar. This year was in May, and uh, it's called Vesak, it's the celebration of the Buddha's birth and enlightenment and Parinirvana, all three. He did on the same day, just to be convenient, so that there there don't have to be a lot of different holidays in Buddhist places. He did all three on one day. I thought that was very thoughtful of him. And um, sometimes he would say that the entire sky was filled with syllables. There's a true scholar for you, right? <laughs> Instead of like deities and stuff like that, he sees syllables. <laughs> 
On uh, one occasion, he wrote the symbolic script of the Dakinis on a scrap of paper, numbers from 1 to 16, and he laughingly remarked to Lama so that with eyes open or closed, he could write without difficulty. What, what is that supposed to mean? He could write without difficulty. Um, his hands, otherwise, his hands trembled so much that his handwriting had become illegible. So, I guess suddenly he was able to write. After which he ate some curd. <laughs> Here's a non sequitur for you. <laughs> From the afternoon of the 25th day, however, he spoke no more. With his eyes wide open, he gazed into the sky. Thus he remained, his countenance shining with splendor. On the 29th day, which was a Friday, when the moon was in the mansion of Rohini, Rohini um, That's the, that's some constellation, right? That's the way they track the the uh, movements of the moon. I guess he sat up with his legs loosely crossed, with one hand in the mudra of meditation and the other hand in the mudra of teaching, presumably like that. As the sun set, he became absorbed in the inner expanse of primordial luminosity. It was on that same day that his heart's on guilt arrived. On the eleventh day of the waxing moon of the fifth month, in order to urge Mipamrimshe to arise from the expanse of the youthful Vaz body. The youthful Vaz body is this weird term that represents the the sort of Vajrayana enlightened body of a of a enlightened person. Dharmakaya of inner luminosity beyond the ordinary mind in the form of the spontaneously present Sambhogakaya, the primordial wisdom of outwardly radiating luminosity and to display I missed something uh, let's see, in order to urge me Pamukshe to arise uh, from the expanse of the youthful Vaz body, which is the way that Dharmakaya is referred to in the Vajrayana terminology of inner luminosity beyond ordinary mind to arise in the form of the spontaneously present Sambhogakaya, the primordial wisdom of outwardly radiating luminosity, and to display its naturally manifesting in space pervading lamp. To display its naturally manifesting in space pervading lamp is Sambhogakaya. Gelsa Rimshe, Dzogchen Rimshe, and others bathed me upon Rimshe's precious form and lustral waters consecrated during the practices of Bumkurkata and Vajravidharana and anointed it with fragrant substances. So, so here begins the traditional way that a body of a realized teacher is, is treated after they pass away, which is very similar to how the body of uh, Chogam Chogam Rimshe was treated after his part, passing away, Parinirvana, in the very centers of his body. So this is the, uh, the sort of the chakras and uh, major and minor uh, places where the nadis come together. They wrote syllables in refined gold and set in place the customary printed mandalas that liberate through contact. So they place all these different syllables in different places of the body. They write them on a piece of paper and plant them, 
with them there. And then they put, uh, 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 it says, printed mandalas that liberate through contact. So there's this idea that liberation can be seen through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And it's uh, there's a text by uh, Padmasambhava called Natural Liberation where he presents these different ways of attaining liberation and so they uh, utilize these the scheme developed for liberation through contact place them on his his form they wrap the body in a clean white cloth and while constantly residing reciting mantras for the dispelling of obscurations they packed it all around with sand so they put him in some sort of uh, container. Let's say they set the body in position, placing a crown on the head and bell and dorje in the hands. So in position means the Vajra position, the Vajrasana, full lotus, sitting upright. And packed with sand uh, implies that they placed him in some sort of a container, a box or a stupa or something, and packed sand all around him. With Trung Parimbache, they, they packed him... Uh, with salt, also in the, in the sitting, uh, I think I think they took him out of the sitting position to put, and put him lying down. The two great campos holders of the vows and the teachings of the Tripitaka, which are the three baskets of the teachings of the Buddha's early uh, teachings, the three collections, together with the Sovereign Master Gyaltsam Rinpoche, the Venerable Lamas Usel Sangyanyan Trail and others, all the masters gathered there were entrusted with the entirety of Mipom's writings and repeatedly took the transmission empowerment from the books themselves. So they all sort of did this ceremonial transmission of receiving his teachings from the actual printed books. On an auspicious day in accordance with the instructions given by Mipom in his testament, which was, uh, there were excerpts from previously in the chapter, Gelsabrimshe, the two Kempos and other masters and disciples performed a cremation of the wish-fulfilling jewel that was his body, according to the hard practice of glorious Vajrasattva. Um, so the cremation ceremony as specified in a certain tantra of uh, Vajrasattva, which is a famous famously uh, common yadam for enigmapas. Canopies of rainbow filled, uh, sorry, rainbow light filled the sky and a powerful rumbling resounded continually so all these uh, magical signs occurred. Similar again and when Trump Ribeshe was cremated there was a double circular rainbow around the sun and some pretty cool uh, cloud formations. The earth shook throughout the whole region of Daniel, much to the amazement of its inhabitants. So, uh, these are all like traditional signs that happened also at the Buddha's birth and at the Buddha's death. The earth shaking and light and fragrance. And in, in the case of the Buddha, there was also fragrances and flower petals. Um, in the cremation stupa were found undamaged, the heart, tongue, and dark blue and as hard and indestructible as diamond. So again, not again, but uh, another aspect of the uh, the tradition in, in Tibet of, uh, of uh, signs of realization that are 
are said to occur and show when there's uh, when the body is cremated. That uh, uh, typically the eyes, heart, and tongue do not get burned by the fire miraculously, because they represent uh, certain aspects of the body, speech, and mind of the teacher of the the Buddha's of the teacher's Buddha nature, or three bodies. Eric, yes. could anybody see these signs, or only like advanced practitioners? There, these the, the way they're presented here, and the way they're generally presented is that the, anybody could see them, and uh, and they often go to great lengths to show them to everybody, and, and for a while, and then uh, they put them in stupas, they bury them in stupas. So, like there's a uh, monastery in Tibet, Eastern Tibet, where they have also the eyes, heart, and tongue of Longchenpa, similarly, supposedly, and. Um, they don't uh, hear the next line is another very common one there were other relics relics past imagining such as a perfect image of Yamataka the wrathful form of Manjushri and all around were garlands of pearl-like relics so these are called ring cells in Tibetan ring cell and um, the idea supposedly there's these little pearls that appear after the body is cremated and that's like the special sign of realization, and they all look for that. And Trumpermache did not leave any, and they were all looking for that afterwards. We brought the bones, the ash, they collected the ashes and the bones into a uh, container with brocade on it and brought it to Kense Rimshe. And he looked through it and he like pulled out these bones and stuff, but uh, there were no, there were no ring cells and no special signs of or syllables you know sometimes there's syllables appear on the, the different bones things like that um, they are now lodged <laughs> they're taking lodging <laughs> in the heart of the uh, story high story, as high as the story statue of Manjushri Shachan that had been built to receive them moreover in the monasteries of Katok Dorje Den so uh, the Nyingma uh, school has six main monasteries, and uh, Shechen is one of them, and Kantok is one of them, and uh, uh, um, Dzogchen is another of them. Um, so the monasteries of Kantok, Dorje Jen, Dorje Den, Zagil, Gon, Gon, and Goti Tashi Pelbar Ling, all the upper and lower monastic colleges and Dharma centers, great and small, they made statues chiefly of Vajrasattva and Manjushri, large and small, to house the relics of Mipam Rimshe. <coughs> um, another thing they do is they make little, um, little stupa-like uh, st uh, structures that they mix some of the salt, or in this case sand, with. Actually, let me show you one that I have. Spaceship, right? It's like the capsule of the Apollo. 
They actually had a vision of the Apollo spacecraft thousands of years ago in Tibet. And then here's another one that, this one's not painted though. Not sure why, but. And they're called Tsatsas. And so they, they distribute, you know, a certain amount of salt or sand. And in the case of Trungpa Rinpoche, they replace the salt like every day or, or maybe even twice. I think once a day they, they change the salt because the salt absorbs all the liquids of the body, all, you know, that all comes out. And so the salt have the blessings of that great being in it. And they, they get sort of wet and disgusting. And so they uh, take the salt out and let the salt dry and then they put in fresh salt, fill the container with fresh salt or sand and then they have tons of salt and sand and then they make all these little statues and give them to sycophants like myself the dedicated loyal believers um, let's see funeral rituals of the old and new traditions and from both the Kama, Kama and Terima collections were performed so the uh, old and new traditions, old is the Nyingma tradition, new is the uh, Tibetan Sarma, S-A-R-M-A, which includes the three schools other than the Nyingma of the uh, Kagyu, Sakya, and Geluk. And the Kama and Terma are the two means that the Nyingma tradition, uh, tradition has used to transmit its teachings and practices from the time of Guru Rinpoche down. The Terma are the hidden treasures that Padmasambhava, along with uh, his master archivist, Yeshe Tsogyal, hid in, in various uh, physical places and non-physical beings. And a vast number of treasures. And then the, the Kama tradition is the person-to-person uh, -person spoken tradition, transmission of teachings that survived the uh, oppression of the evil king Ralpachen when he persecuted Buddhism in the 10th century. According to the terms of Mipam Rimshe's testament, so he wrote like a will, and uh, which, which many, uh, many great masters like him do, and Trump Rimshe did also wrote a will. All his writings and teachings were entrusted to Shechen Jelsop Rimshe. So Shechen Jelsop is uh, not the head Rinpoche of Shechen. The head is uh, Rob Drum Rinpoche, but he's the second in charge, and uh, so he's Rob Drum's. Uh, Gelsub means regent, so it's like this idea that uh, he's supposed to be the one that has the transmissions and uh, the enlightened understanding between Rob Drum Tulkus, and then transmits, uh, absorbs it from one Rob Drum and transmits it to the next one or other uh, great tulkus of that monastery. While the supporters for the Dharma protectors that Mipam Rinpoche used in his daily pra prayers were given to Dzogchen, Chokchul Rinpoche. In fact, all the accoutrements that he had used in his meditation, the statues, instruments of blessing, and articles for practice, all of the materials and substances that had been offered in gift to him 
i.e. to him. In other words, all Mipam Rinpoche's personal possessions were offered to holders of the teachings until there was nothing left and without anything being lost, even down to the last needle and thread. <laughs> um, you know, so presumably the good stuff was like his mala, um, little statues that he used as supports for visualization of the main practices that he performed, maybe his, his uh, the text that he used to recite from also like the holder they have a holder for you know tibetan books are these lengthwise skinny things and they have these special holders for tibetan style books called pages and um, then offering bowls and things like that um and, and they have implements that they use to bless like when they give empowerments they, they bless the people who they give empowerment to things like that um, and Lama Osel Rinpoche a yogi who had himself attained the summit of the vehicle of the great secret ensured that all the commemorative uh, ceremonies were performed on a grand scale to mark the death of the master whom he had always served as perfectly so perfectly in the three ways we saw the three ways earlier, right? The three ways were to uh, uh, provide whatever the master needed, and then to help the master um, perform or accomplish the tasks that that master is, wants to accomplish, and then to uh, practice the teachings. Most uh, sort of most importantly, the, the third way of serving a teacher is to practice her teachings. One day at dawn, about a hundred days after Mipam Rinpoche's departure, Lama Oso had a vision of him while he was standing in front of the reliquary of the venerable Namka Legba, an emanation of Vajrapani, presumably a, a statue in the shrine room of the monastery there. Mipam Rinpoche was just as he was in life, with his rather long nose and his Pandita's hat. In that instant, all ordinary appearances melted away into ultimate space what ultimate space looks like. And Mipam gave to Lama Osel a volume that he composed then and there in a single instant. As Lama Osel looked at it, all the letters turned into shimmering rainbow lights so that it was hard for his eyes to focus on them. Sounds like he was tripping. Afterward, however, as he made an effort to read them, he clearly discerned the words Jalu Dorje, which is uh, Tibetan for Vajra rainbow body, which is the famous way that realized masters in the Nyingma tradition um, demonstrate their complete accomplishment of full enlightenment. And uh, there's very there's there's the uh, nuances of what rainbow body is, uh, but but basically there's two kinds. One is that either uh, the physical body itself shrinks. And, and disappears, leaving only the hair, nails, and teeth. Sort of weird, huh? You come back the next day and there's just like hair, nails, and 32 teeth or so. And then, um, and like fingernails, that would be sort of really spooky, huh? And the other way is that the, the full body just dissolves into light and becomes like a luminous being. And in that way, then, uh, travels onward to help countless sentient beings in various realms. Nipam Rinpoche then transmitted to him new 
were secret prophetic messages, and as he was finishing, he looked fiercely and made the mudra of threatening at his heart. Mudra of threatening is that, by the way. Kids, you need to use that. <laughs> That's rock and roll. That's rock and roll. That's not a mudra of threatening. Same thing, I guess. Three times the words Jalu Dorje resounded loudly, followed by the exclamation, Pei! Now, Pei is the Tibetan pronunciation of the Sanskrit word pot, which is not the thing that you wear in your head or plant plants in, but is uh, it's an exclamatory sort of... Uh, a hyper-exclamatory phrase that's often used in transmitting the uh, uh, pointing out of the nature of mind. Mipam then melted away into space and the minds of the two masters mingled inseparably together. All Mipam faithful and devoted disciples of pure Samaya received advice and blessings from him either directly in the waking state or in the form of meditative experiences or dreams. So he appeared to like all these people various ways. This was attested to by many marvelous and inspiring stories. Previously, Lama Osel, the personification of unequaled wisdom and kindness, had specifically offered Mipam Rimshe the necessary sheets of paper, and with many prayers requested him to write down his outer, inner, and secret life stories. And this he, had, he did producing an entire volume. So it got Mipam Rinpoche to write like his inner like experiences, stuff that that he uh, did during his life that like uh, with, with not with his physical body sort of, you know, sort of in his visionary world. Later, however, not long before his death, when Lama Usa was giving an explanation of the Kala Chakra Tantra to Kimpo Kunpel. Kimpo Kunpel, by the way, is a very famous Kimpo in the Nyingma tradition of recent times. And um, so when Lama Usa wasn't looking, in other words, he was like busy. Mipam Rimshe himself took the volume and burned it, saying, there's no, absolutely no need for things like this, sort of promoting his greatness. Bummer, huh? Too bad he didn't like make a copy. Lama Osel make a copy before he left it lying around. Extraordinary. Yeah, the Xerox machine was probably broken. There you go. Once again, <laughs> damn machine breaks all the time. Extraordinary matters, profound and secret, are not to be sure. Objects suitable for common folk. And accounts of astounding, astonishing rather, and wonderful happenings do not normally figure in expositions of the teachings. In my own opinion, however, accounts that are free of exaggeration or skepticism and that are based on trustworthy reports of what was seen or heard, heard may become for fortunate disciples something on which to rely as a means of nourishing their devotion and faith. And then he gives, uh, the author of Kensei Ramshi gives these wonderful poems and uh, then at the end tells the uh, origin of his his composing of this biography. And uh, he, he includes that he was given his personal name by Mipam Rimshe while he was a baby, Tashi Peljoy. 
and he completed the work on the same that same day of the Tibetan calendrical system, an auspicious day, the last day, presumably uh, 29th. I don't know the. Uh, oh, I see. In in the uh, in the lunar calendar, right? The months have 28 days, and so the months of Dawa must be one of their ways of trying to make up, like we do, where uh, some some months are longer and shorter. So they must have uh, 29 days in that month. must be unusual. But they only do it, I, I think, by like that one day per year. And so every once in a while, they have to add another month to a year to, to catch up. To so it's the intercalary months, right? That's how they do that. Yeah, yeah. So some, like um, usually the Tibetan and the Chinese uh, lunar calendars are the same. They they celebrate New Year's on the same day but like once every I don't know, 10 years, 12 years, a few years or whatever, they're, they're off by a month and that's one of them is catching up you know, by adding an extra month and the other is doing it at a different time anyway um, that's the closing chapter of the life story so let's go back to the lion's roar Collection is often rusty and wrong, but uh, I believe we made it through the bottom of page 149. What do others think? Good. Okay, I got Eileen. At least one person <laughs> said something. <laughs> Thank you. The assertions of earlier Tibetan masters. Okay, so just to review, back up a little bit, the Sukhita Garbha is present in the minds of beings and the beige before. Let us begin, therefore, by examining the arguments that demonstrate the presence of Buddha nature, the Sukhita Garbha, so Buddha nature and Sukhita Garbha, as well as Tathagata Garbha, within the minds of beings. And he quotes this famous passage from the Uttara Tantra that is used as the explanation of, of or the sort of logic for why it's considered that all sentient beings possess Buddha nature. Because the Kaya of perfect Buddhahood radiates. That's what it does. Its nature is to radiate. And because in suchness there's no division in the true nature of, of reality, there's no division between beings or things. And uh, because all beings have potential for enlightenment, which seems like a sort of tautology. That be, all beings have Buddha nature because they have the potential for Buddha nature. It's a little bit odd. But therefore, all beings have at all times Buddha essence. So the third one in particular will have to keep a lookout for us as to how they rationalize that, that statement. And uh, looking quickly at our our outline a few pages earlier. The Sugata Garbha is present in the minds of being, the assertions of earlier masters, the assertions of our own uh, position. And 
distorting. Okay, let's go for it. It's 8.13, that's an auspicious time. In Tibet, certain masters of former times understood the first line of the stanza because the Kaya perfect Buddhahood radiates to mean that all objects are simply pervaded by the Dharmakaya wisdom. That's fair enough. They understood the second line of the stanza because in suchness there's no division to mean that suchness is similar in kind to mere emptiness. And they understood the third line because they have the potential for enlightenment to mean that sentient beings simply have the ability to become enlightened. These statements, however, are very summary and fail to capture the crucial and essential meaning of the Uttara Tantra. So he's saying that uh, they're sort of okay, they're sort of okay, but they can lead to severe misunderstandings or significant misunderstandings because they're not clarified, they're not elaborated sufficiently, and in fact they have led to significant, uh, at least differences in understanding. Let's say, with regard to the first point, that the Kaya perfect Buddha radiates the authentic Buddha potential is not established by the mere fact that objects are pervaded by the Dharmakaya. For even though the wisdom of Buddhahood, which is present within the mind stream of an enlightened being, embraces all other objects and is therefore present in all things, this does not mean that those same objects have themselves the cause for becoming Buddhas. Furthermore, since the Dharmakaya is not for the moment manifest in our minds, we may doubt that there is any evidence of its presence. So he's just beginning the, the presentation of these arguments, and, and the, uh, basically the entire text is going to revolve around these, these three lines. So he's going to flesh out in uh, further detail what he means by all this, because it's, it's not immediately clear what he's getting at. I think, or at least to me, regarding the second point, in suchness there is no division. The meaning of the Buddha potential is not at all to be equated with just the figurative ultimate. The mere concept of emptiness, as presented by these earlier masters. These masters say that the Buddha potential is like a seed that will transform into a shoot. They say that this potential has no enlightened qualities at the moment, but that these will develop when the potential is associated with the conditions of the path. So here's the heart of the uh, the issue, is how do unenlightened beings like me, maybe some of you, how do we go from our current state to an enlightened state? How did Gautama, Siddhartha, the individual who theoretically was an unenlightened being in his youth until his 35th year at dawn on the full moon of the fourth month, the Dawa month, the, presumably the 29th day of the fourth month until he achieved complete perfect Buddhahood. But up until that point, he was a, a, a obscured defiled and ignorant sentient being. So how does that change occur? Is, is there something that changes into something else? You remove the obscurations and defilements. Or 
the other option is it's there all along and if you remove what covers it then it emerges so when it emerges by virtue of being uncovered does it change its nature as it emerges or does it stay the same so are there two people inside of each of us one person that is is the defilements and the obscurations and another person that's enlightened the whole time and, and has no change that that occurs so what yeah. so, so and then you get struck by lightning <laughs> it, it burns everything off and then you're like did i just get struck by lightning and you spend the rest of your life going yeah i did did i get struck by lightning yeah i did <laughs> So that, that's the question, and, and so the path uh, theoretically works on the obstructions to enlightenment, and uh, that begs the question of, are those obstructions to enlightenment actual things, real? And uh, uh, can real things be removed? You know, can, the, can, can something uh, be destroyed? obstructions actually be destroyed? Can something that exists be destroyed? Or does it uh, change into something else? So, um, these masters say that the Buddha potential is like a seed that will transform into a shoot. So, the, uh, some, some Tibetans say that there's the seed of enlightenment, but it's not enlightened at the moment, but it will change, it will transform into a shoot and uh, by virtue of the cause and conditions of the path of the Buddha, that shoot will grow and finally uh, uh, blossom into the state of enlightenment. And so it will change and become something else. It has the potential in the, in the state of the seed, but it becomes something else. Is that the correct way to understand Buddha nature? They say that this potential has no enlightened qualities at the moment, but that these will develop when the potential is associated with the conditions of the path. In affirming this, however, they are saying that the emptiness of true existence, the conceptual aspect that is a non-implicative negation, he's talking about um, the emptiness of true existence. In other words, something uncompoundable uncompounded is capable of performing a function so they're saying that um, you know so the question is what is it that removed the obstruction removes the obstruction and some Tibetans say well the perception of the true nature of reality is what removes the obstructions to enlightenment and that's the sort of general sort of outer version of Buddhism like we uh, we overcome ignorance through wisdom and wisdom is the cognition direct cognition of the nature of reality and that dispels the obstructions but in saying that you're saying that the true nature of reality which um, is uncompounded is performing a function is destroying obscurations and that's the logical inconsistency uh, let's see but it is completely illogical to ascribe such a characteristic to an emptiness of this kind that it can, it's performing a function 
see uh, to to ascribe it to an emptiness that is a mere non-implicative negation, an emptiness that is the absence of any um, uh, qualities or characteristics. A seed that is a compounded entity is perfectly capable on the conventional level of transforming into a shoot, but it can never be possible for an absence of true existence superimposed onto a seed to transform into a shoot. The absence of true existence is supposedly the true nature of reality which is seen in, upon enlightenment. And uh, how can that possibly take the form of something that changes? Or have anything to do with something that changes. Freedom. Question: Isn't isn't it that one's way of seeing, what way we think, is what changes? It's not emptiness itself that does it. It's it's a shift of understanding, essentially. Um, so we have a relative understanding. What causes the shift in the relative understanding? Practice. So by by practicing, by meditating. And instruction. And following instructions. So by, by placing your body in a certain position and by placing the mind on a certain object, that results in the um, destruction of the obstructions. Is there some other causative factor I've left out that causes the enlightenment, the shift in understanding? Well, they often say devotion has, is a factor as well. <clears throat> so what is it? Uh, so before we understand, before enlightenment, we think things are real. And after enlightenment, the, the change in understanding, presumably, commonly is described as um, understanding the, the non-true existence of all phenomena. Well, or both or neither. I mean, the whole fourfold thing. It's not just a single fold of non-existence. Right, so, and, and so how does... How does the different aspects of the path result in that shift in understanding. I think it um, wears away our habitual patterns and opens our minds to be capable of seeing differently. So we keep shifting back, if you notice, there's this subtle shifting back and forth between two options. One is, there, is that there's a, an understanding that changes, or there's a false understanding or false way of understanding the nature of our world that changes into a correct way of understanding our world, or there's a false way of understanding our world that disappears. And then the correct way of understanding, which was there the whole time, emerges. Right. So I may not have articulated what I said very exactly. I guess it's where it's probably removed. I guess the habitual patterns 
I guess if they are, I don't know, I guess when you, when you think about the habitual patterns being removed or eliminated. So there could be a union of the two ways that is the middle way is the union of the existence, absence of existence and yeah, so it could be both, or it could be neither. It could be one, the other, both, or neither. And you like both. That's inclusive. That's definitely, that's definitely the current theme, is inclusivity. I like that. Okay, so furthermore, to claim that it is through the fact of being empty of true existence that one is able to attain Buddhahood is to speak carelessly. So if the true nature of one's being is emptiness, if the true nature of all phenomena is emptiness, then the true nature of one's Buddha nature is emptiness. And to say that emptiness attains Buddhahood is a little bit weird. For whereas it is quite true to say that if the mind exists truly it cannot attain Buddhahood, there is no certainty in saying that it is simply through the absence of true existence that Buddhahood can be attained. That's a tongue twister, huh? For whereas it is quite true to say that if the mind exists truly, it cannot attain Buddhahood. If something exists truly, then it can't change. Right? It is what it is. So it can't go from A to B. Um, all phenomena lack true existence, including earth and rocks, but who would maintain that this gives them the ability to attain Buddhahood? So he gives two reasons against this idea that the true nature of our being is emptiness, and emptiness achieves Buddha nature, achieves Buddhahood. Let's see the next paragraph again. It is senseless to posit the Buddha ten potential, the Buddha nature, as the lack of true existence just because focusing on the absence of true existence is able to remove the obscurations of defilement. So he's claiming that, uh, or he's referring to views that say similar to Cynthia's. Basically, he's saying here what Cynthia's been saying. He's saying that by focusing on the absence of true existence, that act of focusing on the absence of true existence is able to remove the obscurations of defilement. But why would you then posit Buddha nature as being just that absence of true existence? He's, he's asking. For those who say this, also say that the cognitive obscurations, and he's referring, oh, he's referring to one of the two types of obscurations. There's, oh, I have my buzzer on. Nobody's told me that there was buzzing going on. It must not have been that bad tonight. It was. That Sorry about that. On. I thought it was my head. I can't hear it, by the way. In, uh, in other words, we just—I just figured it was necessary for because you were charging or something. 
Oh, always, always remind me, please. Um, so there's two types of obscurations to enlightenment, two types of phenomena or habitual patterns that obscure sentient beings from being enlightened. One type is uh, uh, kleshas. The kleshas are the obstructing emotions or conflicting emotions. Passion, aggression, ignorance. In the, uh, let's see, those are not the uh, politically correct terms. What is it? Attachment, aggression, and stupidity or prejudice. The three roots and all their different variations are the klesha obscurations. And then there's cognitive obscurations. And cognitive obscurations re refers to the cognition of thinking that things are real. In particular, a self, a person's, and an essence of phenomena. So those are the two obscurations, the klesha obscurations and the cognitive obscurations. Coming back to the text, Mipom says, for those who say this also say that the cognitive obscurations cannot be removed just by focusing on emptiness. What he's referring to is that uh, the scheme that's presented by the Tibetans that he's talking about were basically primarily Galukpas, but not exclusively limited to Galukpas. The idea is that at the path of seeing, we achieve a certain level of enlightenment, which is not the level of the achievement of a Buddha. In technical world language, we say that the first Bhumi is enlightenment, and the uh, accomplishment of a Buddha is omniscience. And in between, you have the ten bodhisattva grounds, which take two countless aeons to traverse in the Sutriana system. But the productive cause of the um, achievement of enlightenment, the first Bhumi, the path of seeing, is um, the direct cognition of emptiness or the absence of intrinsic nature of all phenomena. And thus the quandary, on the one hand, does that perception of, or does that non-perception, does a non-activity have a productive result? Can it have a productive result by not perceiving something? And secondly, his point here that he's making is that it's generally agreed upon and understood that the uh, the path of seeing, the enlightenment that occurs at the path of seeing, the first bhumi, removes the klesha uh, um, removes the gross klesha obstructions and the gross cognitive obstructions but does not remove all of the cognitive obstructions. They moreover think that in any case, one must also be adorned with an infinite accumulation of merit in order to 
removes the cognitive obscurations. So it takes the accumulation of merit that a bodhisattva accomplishes over the, t of the, the time of two countless aeons in traversing the ten bhumis. That accumulation of merit is said to be a nece necessary requirement for overcoming completely the cognitive obscurations. And notice I've sort of fudged on the klesha obscurations of like whether they're removed completely at the first bhumi or not. Uh, because there's different views actually on both of them. Um, and it gets sort of endlessly like different, endlessly complicated with different versions. But um, the the sort of general consensus is that the klesha obscurations are um, uprooted. The source of them is uprooted at the first Bhumi enlightenment, but the habitual patterns of them remain to some extent. So enlightened beings of that first level of enlightenment still have, still might have habitual reactions to phenomena outside of their meditative equipoise. And there's this very technical classification of two types of uh, experience. One is what such individuals experience in their meditation, where they're in direct cognition with the true nature of reality. It's called meditative equipoise. And then the rest of their life, when they're not in meditative equipoise, is what do they experience? Not the first boomy, those are dramatically different. Well, uh, they're, they're different, very different experiences. In meditative equipoise, or poise, they are, uh, you know, completely enlightened. And that, that experience of enlightenment does not differ significantly between a first level bodhisattva and a tenth level bodhisattva. What does differ is their experience outside of meditation. So over the ten bhumis, they they eliminate gradually the habitual tendencies that remained, which have no root, but were were so deeply ingrained from beginningless time that they take time to overcome. And so one last little nuance I'll add about this whole scheme. Can they say uh, one must also be adorned with an infinite accumulation of merit. They're referring to previous lives. Uh, presumably, it would be hard to accumulate this much merit in one life, or uh, it would also be difficult to live for an, a countless aeon in one lifetime. Um, Especially in these degenerate times. Oh my God, yeah. And uh, so one little other nuance about this is that the achievement of the path of seeing, where one achieves that first cogniz uh, cognition of emptiness, is achieved through um, understanding, through the blossoming of wisdom, of understanding the true nature of reality. Whereas the, the, uh, the progress of the remainder of the path from the, f the second boomy to the tenth boomy is the result of habituation to 
the true nature of reality. And there's no further real um, realization, cognitive realization that occurs on those ten bhumis until one achieves Buddhahood. There's a there's another little jump of uh, sort of wisdom from from uh, sort of relative uh, or bodhisattva wisdom, let's say, to Buddha wisdom. But there's a deepening of um, familiarization with or accustoming, becoming accustomed to the true nature of reality. So the fourth path is usually called the path of meditation, but it's really the, the term in Sanskrit and in Tibetan really refers to becoming accustomed to becoming familiar with and that is actually the term that, that's that's used for meditation meditation is becoming familiar with an object and in this case one is becoming familiar with the true nature of reality did that clarify your question liz is um, further yeah I, my question was going to be um is, is the first the, the intellectual understanding and then um, as you progress, it's it's more of a, a, a knowing, like a experiential. Um... I think the first the experience at the first boomy is an intellectual, so to speak, experience, and then the progression through the remainder of the boomies is more of an of what we might be call a behavioral or emotional development where one is gradually overcoming the habitual patterns of the the glaciers. wait a and second the, you, question but isn't first boomy is more than an intellectual it's an experiential realization you you undermine the emotional pattern so you don't um you don't have a basis for generating more negative emotional patterns but the habitual, the, the hangover of emotional reactivity remains. Thank you. And then at the level of, uh, to go from the 10th Bhumi to Buddha Hood is uh, another little in, sort of, uh, to use a, in, the word intellect in a sort of odd way, because it's a, it's a non-conceptual intellectual understanding. So that's the second jump. Okay, so um, so when he says the cognitive obscurations are not removed by focusing on emptiness, he's referring to that scheme where the uh, klesha obscurations were removed by focusing on emptiness. That happens over the second path, the path of joining or application or preparation as it's variously called where one goes from a conceptual understanding of emptiness to a direct cognition of emptiness, which is the real is the achievement of the path of seeing and enlightenment. And then the cognitive obscurations are removed by that deepening process of familiarization with emptiness, but not by by a by focusing on emptiness. They moreover think that in any case, one must also be adorned with an infinite accumulation of merit. We went over that a little bit. It's pointless to give the name Sugata Garbha to such a kind of non-implicative negation. 
emptiness is defined by the earlier schools, or i.e., emptiness is defined by the earlier schools. I mean, why would you why would you have a phrase like Sugata Garba that's so full of uh, um, potential, so full of meaning or implication for a non uh, for for something that is really just a non-implicative negation? It would it would be sort of a contradictory term. A potential, as in garba, the term garba means potential, of this kind is the same as what the Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas meditate on. I'm not actually sure what that's referring to. That's interesting. On the contrary, the ability to attain Buddhahood is not established by this means. And as far as concerns a Sugata Garba, seen as a mere non-implicative negation, it is quite untenable to say that after removing the cognitive obscurations, the primordial wisdom of omniscience arises. Oh, I'm sorry, Cynthia, I think that's what you were saying, wasn't it? But maybe he's wrong. Let's see how he defends that. Um, as far as, far as concerns a Sugha Dagarbha seen as a mere non-implicative negation, it's quite untenable to say that after removing the cognitive obscurations at the end of the path of familiarization, the primordial wisdom of omniscience arises. For since within the very nature of a non-implicative negation, there is no element of knowing. It is impossible for any kind of knowledge to be present even at the time of enlightenment. So the implication, so to speak, of a non-implicative negation is that there's there's no qualities of knowing of wisdom, and so and uh, the other Buddha qualities. So partially, or not partially, but in essence, this whole. Um, issue of how to understand Buddha nature and how to reconcile Buddha nature with the uh, presentation of the non-intrinsic uh, existence or truth of phenomena um, goes back to the, the enlightenment of the Buddha. Is If enlightenment is real, is it just a nothingness? Is it just an experience of nothingness. And so, would a Buddha then have qualities? Why would a Buddha have qualities? Why would a Buddha have Buddha qualities? Aren't they just empty? Isn't the nature of a Buddha then also a non-implicative negation beyond conception with no aspects and no capabilities? Not in our view, not in our schools. Because our, our school does not yield or, or hold, rather, cleave to a non, the understanding of the nature of reality is a mere non-implicative negation. So this term, non, mere non-implicative negation, he's referring to the understanding of emptiness that's, pre that's presented in some traditions who um, say they're followers of the Prasangika Madhyamaka tradition. And they fixate on the methodology employed by the Prasangikas. And that methodology of absurd consequences, of pointing out the absurd consequences of any affirmative 
statement or thought is to render all such conceptuality, all such understanding, all such belief in things as being in the way that we can conceive them as um, render all of those um, false. Taking everything away and not not um, and saying that there's nothing left. There's just there's just you can't say what there's is F in, in the true nature of reality. And and so how does one reconcile that with the experience conveyed by the Buddha of his own experiences of being enlightened? Where he claims to have supernormal powers, he claims to have uh, the three bodies of a Buddha: the Dharmakaya, the Samugakaya, the Nirmanakaya, and to have all sorts of different types of wisdoms, and strengths, and powers, and capabilities that are manifestations of the limitless compassion of a Buddha, of an awakened person. So let's see. Therefore. <clears throat> Instead of an uncompounded absence of true existence, which is the mere non-implicative negation, it would fit the position of our opponents better. So he's actually, he's going to give his opponents, he's going to give them, a, he's going to suggest to them a better position to take. Because he finds their current position as being sort of way too simplistic and, and just not really um, worth arguing against. He says it would fit the position of our opponents better to think of the Buddha potential in terms of a kind of compounded nature that is able to evolve. That the Buddha nature is actually a compounded phenomena that can change because only compounded phenomena can change. And this is the famous position of the Galupas that at the time of ascension being the Buddha potential is a potential, the Buddha nature, sorry, is a potential. And at the time of a Buddha, the Buddha nature has evolved and blossomed into a, a fully matured Buddha. And so it changes, the Buddha nature changes. And because of that, they consider Buddha nature to be a relative phenomena that has no intrinsic reality. That is basically of, uh, of the same nature of all, as all other phenomena, which is a mere non-implicative negation, because it's compounded and it changes. And so, but but uh, the so-called opponents don't want to call the Buddha nature a compounded phenomena because they know that's absurd. So they create this illogical way of of presenting the Buddha nature as having these contradictory qualities. So he says, you should just give in and say that it's a compounded phenomenon. It changes. Saying that within the mind streams of all beings, there are present from beginningless time the seeds of wisdom, love, and power. Those are the three qualities. Wisdom, love, compassion, and capability. Power. Power in the sense of capability. Those are the three aspects of a Buddha. And they're represented by the three main bodhisattvas. Manjushri represents wisdom. Um, Avalokiteshvara represents compassion or love. And Vajrapani represents power or capability. 
And those three, that triad is the same triad that appears in all these other triads throughout the Buddhist systems. The three doors of liberation, the three root poisons are their uh, nemesis. What would you say? Nemesis or opposite? <laughs> and so forth. Um, after all, even wild beasts and demons feel love for their young and they have the ability to recognize the difference between helping and harming. And this is one of the uh, rationalizations that's used for saying that all beings have Buddha nature is that um, even terrible individuals, even her, her heinous people like Hitler and so forth, they they care for what they consider people beings they consider to be their own. While others they, you know, don't care for it all. And they inflict enormous pain upon. And they have the, they're able to recognize the difference between helping and harming. Zongso Rinpoche is famous for saying, you know, what proves that Hitler and other heinous individuals like him, that they have, that they actually have Buddha nature, is that they know how to torture people as cruel as that you know is it's like by doing that that shows they they have you know they have feelings warped twisted and perverted as they are and if this capacity were to be informed by the path so if these evil beings were to be you know subjected to the path and if it were gradually uh, this capability, if this capacity that these beings have were informed by the path and were gradually freed from hindrances and the capacity was made to develop that Buddha nature changed, such beings would eventually possess boundless knowledge, love, and power. If our opponents were to say that this is what the capacity for enlightenment is, it would be a far better position than to say that the Buddha nature or potential is a non-implicative negation, a mere lifeless absence. <laughs> um, for, it is for it necessarily implies a causal sequence giving rise to a result, and to abandon this result-producing factor, which cannot but be a momentary entity, and say that the cause of enlightenment is an uncompounded non-thing incapable of giving rise to anything at all. It's truly an astonishing position to adopt. And what he's referring to more precisely here is that in the Galupa system, they come up with the conclusion that the cause of enlightenment is the direct cognition of the true nature. Well, and this is the general scheme in Buddhism that enlightenment is the result of a direct meaning non-inferential, unmediated cognition, experience of the true nature of reality. And the Galupas, in their fixation on uh, making everything fit into their, their system, that there's one scheme of valid, of, uh, valid cognition, assert that therefore the object of the wisdom that sees the true nature of reality must be an actual object, must be a thing, because it produces enlightenment. 
right? So they weave themselves into this really uncomfortable position of saying that the non the uh, you know uh, non-implicative negation that is the intrinsic the, the nature of reality the absence of intrinsic reality of all phenomena actually produces something therefore it must be an entity right the definition of a thing is that it functions it, it can produce a function and the main functions that things produce or that things carry out are to be observable or to produce the next instant of their continuum. And uh, so if you're able to observe the true nature of reality, and that, sorry, if the observation of the true nature of reality produces enlightenment, then that object has to be a thing. So they create this very weird system where it's a non-implicative negation and yet it has productive capability. It's very bizarre. Some people reflecting upon such problems. You know, it's bizarre, but it's sort of, you can see how it comes about. It's, it's like, in some ways, it's sort of very logical and consistent. Some people reflecting upon such problems say that the Buddha potential is not the absence of true existence in all things. So some people, you know, seeing that there's a logical problem in that whole system say, well, okay, it's not just a non-applicative negation. Only the mind's absence of true existence is tenable as the Buddha potential. But even if we grant that the Buddha potential is the mind's lack of true existence, the fact remains that a lack of true existence is unable to perform the activity of giving rise to something. (laughs) The absence of something cannot be a productive cause. Whereas the moments of the mind can quite rightly be said to perform the function of generating successive moments, which is the you know one of the two aspects of a functioning phenomena is to produce the next moments of its continuum. So everything right now that you see around you is doing that. You can observe it, you can see it, so it's observable, and unless you burn the chair or table or whatever objects around you and incinerate them, they continue to be chairs, tables, and windows and doors on a sort of relative nominal level, that is. Anyway, an uncompounded Buddha potential, as they understand it, thus becomes irrelevant and our opponents should abandon it. So he he uh, he dispensed with the idea that the Buddha potential is compounded, and now he's dispensing with the idea that the Buddha nature is uncompounded. Is that right? Did I, did I read that right? So he's he's uh, dispensing with both extremes. Now they well, think, that little parenthetical thing as they understand it, which. Ah, maybe they don't. Maybe it is uncompounded, but they don't understand uncompounded properly. Thank you, Cynthia. 
now they may think as follows. So he's, you know, he's, he's talking about like an, a debate partner who's, who, who he's using prasangika logic on it, like showing the, the invalid consequences of whatever his opponent is putting forward. And the opponent, you know, is getting more and more uncomfortable and trying to wriggle his, his or her way out of this conundrum and say, well, maybe it's a pickle, maybe it's a motorcycle, maybe it's a hat or a, or a car, you know. So now the opponent comes up with this. They could say that they are not positing the Buddha potential on the basis of the separation of the two truths, each on its own side. But that, on the contrary, the same Buddha potential is the nature in which the luminosity of the mind and its emptiness. So, uh, in the, in the parenthetical, it says the phenomena. So, they're trying to explain the the significance or the nuance of Mipom's terminology here. He says. This same Buddha potential is the nature in which the luminosity of the mind, and the luminosity of the mind is the relative phenomenal nature of the mind. Like fire is hot, mind is luminous. Right? And its emptiness, which is the ultimate nature of the mind in their system, are inseparable. So they're saying, well, you have to understand that there's this inseparability of luminosity and emptiness. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> I even said it at the beginning of the course. I repeat it all the time. It's talking about me. In answer to this, we would say that if, of the two, ordinary consciousness and primordial wisdom, our opponents are referring to primordial wisdom, which is unchanging and uncompounded, then what they are saying is proved by reasoning in scripture, and it's certainly true. So if they're saying it a certain way, then he's agreeing, he agrees. But if, by the phenomena that is to be united with emptiness, they mean the ordinary consciousness, which is momentary, then to think that this can be gradually transformed into Buddhahood is very foolish. So if you're saying that the ultimate nature of the mind is transformed into Buddha nature, he's sort of okay with that because really it doesn't get transformed, it already is. But if you're saying that the relative nature of the mind transforms into an ultimate nature of Buddhahood, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Paul. So this thing got rather complicated rather quickly, didn't it? <laughs> This lion's roar. This is a very complicated text. Very neat. Convoluted um, argument. For it follows, in that case, that there are two aspects to the potential. He's talking about the Buddha potential, Buddha nature. So, if you assert this way of understanding it, that the, the nature of the ordinary mind transforms into primordial wisdom of Buddhahood, that in that case you're saying there's two aspects of the potential, one that is compounded and one that is uncompounded. So in effect you're saying that Buddha nature 
has two aspects, an uncompounded and a compounded. This being so, the aspect that is uncompounded and consequently powerless to do anything, such as produce the enlightened qualities even at the stage of Buddhahood, is the Buddha potential only in name. Because it's powerless. On the contrary, the real Buddha potential, please stand up and be the compounded aspect which is able to produce results. But by such a thing, the wisdom intention of all the Mahayana Sutras, which declare that the naturally present Buddha potential is the uncompounded Dharmadhatu, the expansive ultimate reality, is reduced to nothing. So he gives a little hint. You know, he's like, uh, in saying that, he's revealing that in the profound Mahayana Sutras, they explain that the Buddha potential is the uncompounded Dharmadhatu. Buddha, Buddha potential, Buddha nature is uncompounded. It's not compounded. It doesn't change. Dharmadhatu is the expanse of ultimate reality. Since the Buddha potential, posited in terms of something produced and something that produces, i.e., it's talking about the compounded nature of Buddha, uh, the compounded option of Buddha potential, is inevitable a matter for the ordinary mind, one may refer to this naturally abiding potential as the pure Dharma Dhatu. But in that case, what one believes and what one says are in blatant contradiction. <laughs> You've sort of tied yourself up into knots in the way that you're trying to explain how this, the, this, this, this fact of enlightenment occurs. How does enlightenment occur? How does a non-enlightened sentient being become an enlightened Buddha? You know, separate from all the complexity of this, that's, that's really what this boils down to, is how does enlightenment occur? Does an unenlightened mind change, transform into an enlightened mind or not? And, uh, you know, what are the nuances of that? When one affirms that the potential for Buddhahood is the unchanging Dharmadhatu, one must recognize that the basis for the imputation of Dharmadhatu, the conceptual understanding of Dharmadhatu, so when he says the basis for the imputation of Dharmadhatu as a label, and the basis of imputation is ideally the actual thing itself, or the components of the thing itself. So when we say, what is the basis for the imputation of a chair or a table? It's the assemblage of legs and seat and back in the case of a chair. That's the basis of imputation. So the basis, one must recognize that the basis for the imputation of Dharmadhatu must be the non-figurative ultimate truth. So when we say Dharmadhatu, we're referring to the actual ultimate truth, the great union of the two truths, the the, the nature of the ultimate nature or the uh, characteristic of the ultimate nature, so to speak, is the unity of the two truths because the relative truth dissolves into the ultimate. The very meaning of the middle way that is in no way found in any ontological extreme. So when one affirms the potential for Buddhahood as the unchanging Dharmadhatu, going back to the beginning of that sentence, one must recognize that 
the true Dharma Dhatu is the actual ultimate. If failing to recognize this one states that it is just the figurative ultimate, which is what some people say about the Buddha nature, is it's an approximation of the way things are. It's an, it's an attempt to understand the true nature of reality in terms that are copacetic to beings, i.e. the figurative ultimate. If uh, you fail to recognize that true nature and one states that it's just the figurative ultimate, then the situation is like someone who seems a troop, sees a troop of monkeys in the forest and deludedly thinks that they are gods of the heaven of the 33. So the heaven of the 33 is one of the realms of the gods, uh, who I can't remember which, but uh, for if one takes as the Dharmadhatu something is, that is not the Dharmadhatu and claims that it is the Buddha potential, and if focusing on this one thinks that one is meditating on the Prajnaparamita, and thinks that it's the cause of the Subhavaka Kaya, one is simply inventing a path and claiming that it's the great vehicle, as the Wisdom Sutras themselves say. So, he's this this last sentence is helpful in that he's he's pointing out that this issue is not really just a sort of intellectual speculation, but it really gets to practice in the sense that when we meditate, what are we trying to understand? We're, we're, he says, it, one thinks that one is meditating on the Prajnaparamita. So when we meditate, we're trying to meditate on the transcendent, transcendence of wisdom, Prajnaparamita. We're trying to achieve enlightenment. You know, most of the time when we meditate, or at least when I meditate, I'm just trying to like chill out and like, you know, come into the present. But advanced meditators like you guys, when you sit, when you go on retreat, you're actually trying to achieve enlightenment. The only way to achieve enlightenment has something to do with meditating on, uh, with transcendent knowledge, wisdom. So it's actually important to, we, this is the whole reason why study in Buddhism is held to be of value. Because when you meditate on things, your mind cleaves to them. So if you meditate on God, you will become convinced of a God. You will experience a God realm. You will experience a union with your, um, with the basis for the imputation of God. And so that's why uh, at a certain point in our path of practice, it's really essential that we figure out what are we trying to understand in our meditation. There's there's this basic sense in our in our tradition, the, the uh, practice tradition, that, that you sit and from sitting meditation, knowledge will emerge. That's a little bit of a risky proposition. 
I think it makes sense to to add a little sense of certainty to that proposition by like actually trying to understand what the nature of reality is that we're wanting to emerge out of our meditation. Anyway, this uh, the naturally pure Dharma Dhatu or emptiness is the expanse of the two truths free from all the webs of mental elaboration and it is known by self-cognizing primordial wisdom. It is known. It's an object of knowledge. It's a thing. It can be known. <laughs> this is the authentic Buddha potential and is that which becomes the Swabhavakakaya. That term simply the simplest way of understanding is, is it's just the combination of these three uh, usual kayas, more, more commonly known kayas of the uh, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Nirmanakaya all together make up the Swabhavakakaya. In some places it's presented as a fourth kaya though, and, and, and the, uh, the nuance is that it's somehow different from the sum of the three, but that's beyond me personally. This is the authentic Buddha potential as that which becomes the Sobhavaka kind, becomes, changes into, endowed with the twofold purity. Pure from beginning and pure by, by virtue of having accomplished the path. It's the twofold purity. As all the Mahayana Sutras and their commentaries proclaim this being so, the naturally present potential is uncompounded and it is improper to say anything that suggests otherwise. It is unacceptable to say anything to deny that the qualities of the Dharmakaya are a result that comes about through elimination. So he seems to be presenting his own view here and he seems to be repeating some of the views that he uh, refuted. Does that seem that way to you guys? Just to be like candidly honest here? I think there's, it's just this sort of very subtle nuance that he avoids the traps. I think that's, that's the uh, presumption here. And uh, I think the rest of the text will, the job of the rest of the text is to flesh out in what way what he's now putting forward differs from the mistaken views. Because in some ways it does sound similar. This being so, the naturally present potential is uncompounded and is improper to say anything that suggests otherwise. It is unacceptable to say anything to deny that the qualities of the Dharmakaya are a result that comes about through eliminations. For it is untenable to say that something uncompounded can give rise to a result other than itself and then cease to exist in the same way that a productive cause gives rise to a produced effect. This the regent, which is uh, how Maitreya is often referred to. He is the regent of the current Buddha, Shakyamuni. This, the regent, a Mahasattva abiding on the 10th ground, by definition Maitreya is on the 10th Bodhisattva ground, he has declared in the Uttara Tantra, which is attributed to Maitreya, this text, which 
the Mipam has quoted from that famous verse. And the glorious Lord, Arya Nagarjuna, has also clearly said in his text called the Dharmadhatu Stava. Now he's, he's referring to a text by, by Nagarjuna that's uh, in English is called the Praise to Dharmadhatu and presents a very different picture from all the other, almost all the other texts by Nagarjuna. <clears throat> Certainly very different from his uh, six texts that are called the Collection of Reasonings that begins with the root text on uh, the middle way, the Mula Bandyamaka Karika, where Nagarjuna refutes the intrinsic nature of any, everything and anything. Uh, and um, in doing so, um, points out a non the uh, non-implicative nature of emptiness. Now, in Western scholarship, this text is considered not to be authored by Nagarjuna. So there's a little, there's this, there's a sort of a nuance here of like, who's, who's who, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know what the hell's on third, you know, that sort of thing. Of like, there's, Nagarjuna supposedly lived for 600 years, and he wrote the Mulabanyama Kakarika in about 150 of the Common Era, and then sometime in like, uh, four or five hundred of the common era, he started churning out to, uh, Vajrayana texts, commentaries on uh, Vajrayana schemes. He's attributed, uh, he's, uh, there's a text, a very famous key text of the Vajrayana tradition called the Five Stages that's attributed to Nagarjuna. That presents the, the basic kernel of the Vajrayana path. And so Westerners say, come on, he didn't, nobody lived 600 years. These are different people named Nagarjuna. And yeah, Nagarjuna was an amazing guy. Why wouldn't you name your kid after Nagarjuna? Right? <laughs> Look at all the kids that are named Jesus. <laughs> We can't say that they're all, you know, the, the same person. <laughs> so there's all these different, you know, Nagarjanas and different, these guys, uh, it's a common practice to give people the names of great predecessors, right? And uh, on the other hand, the Tibetan tradition accepts the authorship of all of these texts as stated and views that Nagarjuna wrote these texts. And so the Golukpas are hard-pressed to explain this particular one called the Praise of Dharmadhatu. And they basically say, well, Nagarjuna was such a ruthless sort of presenter of the non-applicative emptiness way that he had to sort of give in and be a sort of soft and nice guy a little bit here and there, and so he, he did some other texts that were meant to assuage the, the fear of those who can't really handle the, the true nature of reality. 
but it's a, a big controversy. And that means uh, those were, that, from that point of view, they were provisional, not definitive. That's right. Yeah. So this is boiling down to, like, how do you classify which texts, which sutras of the Buddha are provisional or not really the ultimate intention of the Buddha and which ones are? Because the Buddha presented, a, there's a lot of different sutras in the Mahayana tradition attributed to the Buddha that say very different things. The, the Buddha nature sutras present a very different picture from the Prajnaparamita sutras where everything is refuted. So how do you reconcile those two? So the Tibetans come up with this system of saying, well, there's all the texts that talk about a non-implicative negation are affiliated with the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma by the Buddha. And those are definitive. Those are the real ones that the Buddha meant. And then afterwards, he turned a third turning because people freaked out and that people that couldn't handle the ultimate nature of emptiness needed like a stepping stone path and so he presented buddha nature teachings to them and then other tibetans are like no come on the buddha would not have done that he, he would present a progressive uh, presentation of the subtlety of the dharma and uh, the second turning was a stepping stone it was a necessary aspect of the path is to strip away all your preconceptions of of how things might exist in the way that our minds conceive them so that you enter into the world of of the uncreated the world beyond conception beyond concept and then you can be introduced to the emptiness endowed with the supreme of all aspects which is this cool term that means that the true nature of reality is luminous Buddha nature as presented in this body of teachings that they, that they um, categorize as being the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma. Now Tibetans generally pretty much agree on which sutras go in the second and which in the third. They just disagree on how to classify those two as being ultimate or provisional. But there are some Tibetans that argue, well, no, the, the Buddha nature one should be the second and the empty, you know, they start messing up the whole thing and it gets really complicated. <laughs> anyway, so for this reason, coming back to the text, the last sentence of the, paragraph, the overlapping paragraph on 154, for this reason, we in our tradition, Mipom's Nyingma tradition, follow these texts that he's just referred to, the Uttara Tantra and the Dharmadhatu Stava, and affirm that the Buddha potential is the uncompounded Dharmadhatu. This very expanse is the ultimate way of being of all phenomena is in it and is in itself devoid of birth or cessation. It abides as the very essence of the inseparability of appearance and emptiness and never falls into either of these two extremes. So it is that compounded phenomena which do appear to arise and cease do not exist in the way that they appear. Consequently, the nature of the Dharmadhatu is never stained by them. The causal process that gives rise to samsara is pure from the beginning. It is completely inseparable from the immaculate appearances of spontaneously present luminosity. 
by means of this crucial point, we should recognize the character of the Sugata Garbha correctly. So the last couple of paragraphs, he just gives his 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 presentation of the true nature of the situation, and then the rest of the text is basically uh, <coughs> clarifying that position. So we're a little bit over time, and I didn't accomplish. We were supposed to go, to, I think, to 161. So again, I'm a little bit falling behind, but uh, hopefully the I spent a lot of time blabbing about this and that. Hopefully that was at least a little bit helpful. Thank and, you. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, good. Okay. So uh, I think it'll be cumulative because he'll be going through this these three lines in detail. So. Any any uh, final comments or questions or suggestions? I just you kind of touched on this at the beginning, but um, a question that comes up for me reading all this is the partner to how can any being be enlightened is also how can any being be not not be enlightened? Like why isn't everybody just enlightened? What and what are the obscurations and where do they come from? Like I apply the same questions to those that I have or that he's raising about Buddha potential. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It goes the other way. If you say that the Buddha potential is is uh, present in all beings in a fully matured way, not as not as some potential that changes, but as something unchanging, if it's there from the start, then why are people all deluded? Why are there sentient beings? Why are there not all Buddhas? And <laughs> Cynthia? Nope, go ahead, go ahead. I thought you were asking that as a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say referring to the very many metaphors in the Uttara Tantra, basically they all have to do with, you know, the statue covered with mud, the, you know, basically it's that that's there, what you just described is there, but obscured. It gets back to the whole notion of obscurations. But what is the mud? Like, what is the obscuration? And what level of reality does the obscuration have? What level of reality does it have? Like what? Um, yeah, it's so, so it's relative. It's uh, it's ignorance that we're not seeing the true nature of reality clearly, and therefore we're obscured. So I think that all would have to fall into the relative. So really, there are only Buddhas. And there are no sentient beings. There are no deluded sentient beings. There's only Buddhas here. And, and so you come away with this this very odd Bow to you all. Real, realization that, that there's sort of two people going on at the same time in every sentient being. There's the deluded Derek Kalini who thinks I'm deluded and doesn't know about the Buddha that's inside. And then there's the Buddha in here that couldn't give a shit about the deluded side of my being and, and think, you know, realize that the deluded part of me is a, is a fiction of only the deluded part of me. Yes, but, but the Buddha part of you is only a potential. Uh, that's the slippery slope. If it's only a potential and you're saying it changes. Now, in this view, it's not a potential. There's different views on right. that. Right. Well, in this view, that's the crux of the biscuit, right? So, is the Buddha nature a potential in the stage of a sentient being, and then changes and becomes, you know, 
uh, fully something in the state of a Buddha, or is it unchanging? Eric? Well, I, I think it also has to do with our understanding of the word potential. And maybe there's a word that we haven't yet thought of to describe that. That it, that, that it is within you, it's, but it's, it's a middle. But not. But it's not available or it's not. Yeah, um, that's great. That's actually really good because uh, to some extent that's what uh, the tradition ends up coming up with is this, this way of describing the Buddha nature as being fully there at the beginning and unchanging through, throughout the path. But then they say, well, it's not actualized. It's not sort of energized or, or you know, like plugged in or something. You know, so then there's like this middle way of like coming up with some other way of describing it as being not quite a Buddha, but not a potential either. So I think we'll see Mipom probably touch upon that as well. That was good. Anything else? So, uh, <laughs> Mipom, there's only one Mipom. And he's in Shambhala. He never came back. No other Mipoms. There's only one. And that was that, in the last that last chapter, it was there. Yeah, it was pretty clear in that last chapter. He's not, yeah. he's not come back. I, I was, I was a little worried. I was like, I don't know, is Dilgo going to pull the Tibetan party line and say he can be reincarnated? Which way is it going to go? <laughs> Maybe he could no, tell us. He went with the truth. Awesome. <laughs> Maybe he could tell us which way to Shambhala because we all yeah. seem to be lost. Well, you have where to is Shambhala? You have to become a Buddha to know where Shambhala right? is. That's the, that's the $64 million question. Where is Shambhala? North, he said. Yeah, yeah, he did. He said, "Go north." And it's in the north, north right? <laughs> Isn't Santa Claus live there up in the north? I think there's yeah. some relationship between the two, personally. <laughs> okay, on that note, we should uh, dedicate all the vast merit that we've accumulated. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden son of the Grades. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Have a good evening and have a great nice weekend. Commentary. It was good. good, thank you. That's nice. Okay, take care. See you soon. Bye. Bye.